Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome John, founding partner of Eka Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm investing in seed and early series A consumer technology companies, building sustainable economy. Prior to Eka, John has spent 11 years at MMC Ventures, ultimately as managing partner and led venture investments in 17 companies and has been the investor representative on the board of 21 companies. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. John, welcome to the European VC podcast. Super cool to have you today. How is everything on your side? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you very much for asking me on. Really looking forward to this. Yeah, listen to a load of your, your podcast. So excited to be a part of it. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. So let's start with the basics, right? It's always good to know who we're talking to for our listeners that may not know who you are. Give us a very, very brief rundown. Like, who are you? How did you end in this in this industry? And, and also, quick origin story, Vika. I've been in venture since 2007. So before starting Eco, I was a fund called MMC Ventures. And when I was there, I hired someone called Camilla Dolan into the investment team in 2013. And we worked really closely together for, for four years, did our best deals together. And then she, she left in 2017. But she said to me as she was leaving that her ambition was to start a venture fund. And were I ever to do that to make sure I, I spoke to her about it? And so it kind of went from there, really. And in 2018, I did leave MMC and started talking to Camilla about what a, an incredible venture fund would look like and what it would do. And we came up with three core principles to what we wanted to build around. And the first was this belief that most valuable businesses of the next 20, 30 years would be built to solve a clear social or environmental challenge in our economy. The second was that when we looked at everything that we'd done in venture and then kind of looked around the industry, we just believed that the single biggest driver of success was a founder's ability to develop with their business. So the idea of going from managing four people to managing a thousand people and this belief that it needed to be the same person, like founders build the most successful businesses, but in some ways they needed to develop to be a very different leader. But then when we thought about how we had been assessing founders and how other VCs assess founders, it just felt like it was, you know, it was just not fit for purpose. And so we wanted to build a venture fund that, you know, what would it look like if you designed a venture fund from the ground up to focus on that understanding someone's capacity to develop? So that was the second principle. And then the third principle was, um, at the time, we called it kind of a focus on consumer technology. But by that, we didn't mean direct to consumer. What we meant was technologies that really touch people's lives, that like interact with people. And a feeling that while there are some incredible VCs that focus on that, that there'd been a, quite a significant shift towards like SaaS and enterprise software and away from those kind of core technologies. And we wanted to build a, a fund around that. So those three things, really, one was this concept of societal environmental value. Second was focus on founder development. And then the third was focus on consumer technology. Yeah. And so we, I mean, this was 20, end of 2018, we wrote the pitch deck. We had like the name, Ica, is a scientific prefix, which means predicted, but as yet undiscovered. So kind of suitably venture But the, <laughs> the, the, the actual finding of the name was a lot less strategic than that. It involved a kind of baby name finder and a, 
and a, and a search engine, but I won't go into the details of that. Yeah, so we then, 2019, we started to raise the fund. We had a first close in 2020 and then a final close in 2021. So we've been investing since 2020. We've evolved the strategy really from that original concept of shared value to focus on what we call sustainable consumption. So resource like circular supply chains within consumption, which is one thing that we do. The second is consumerization of healthcare, which is all about this shift from a very reactive treatment driven healthcare system to a more proactive and preventative system. And I guess it kind of, as is the case, I imagine with all emerging managers, we kind of talk about what we do and the fundraisers if it was nothing, but it's obviously very much something. <laughs> it was quite a journey, but it's, yeah, that is where we've got to. And we're about halfway through that first fund now. So we want to back about 25 companies from it. We've, yeah, we've got about 10 or 11 left to do. You spoke a bit about your thesis and everything, but you left out something that we uh, spoke about just before, which was on your website, you say category defining, and then we joked around with the fact that you can <laughs> practically not be a VC without claiming to be or using the word category defining. And I asked you, do you use it just because it's a VC word or do you use it because you actually read the book, play bigger and care about that whole strand of thinking? So just because I think we have a bit of a shared love there. I love to hear you just talking a bit about category definition and, and why you think that it's worthwhile talking about new category creating businesses. Because I personally find that even though many use the word, they very rarely use the word in its original meaning from the ones that actually came up with the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so I, I love that book. And actually, since we chatted about it before, I remembered he recommended it to me. It was a, a guy called Peter Fern. Um, who's a software exec. And we were talking about the kind of crossing the chasm methodology too. And he said, like, you must read this book and read it. And it just made so much sense to me in terms of like building energy behind creating a new category and, and the methodology that you use. And actually, what I recommended the book to a founder I was working with who then used it, did the whole kind of playbook, including like the lightning strike and, and everything and got a huge benefit from it. So yeah, like it is now a cliche, which is a bit of a shame, but it is something that I really believe in. I, I mean, I, I guess in reality, the core definition of venture only really works if you manage to back one or two companies in a fund that do not only define a category, but define a big category. So it kind of would be in the definition of VC. So I suppose that's why it's on so many websites. No, but it's funny, right? Because you have this group of thinkers that came up with the definition and really have kept on since, I guess, for 15 years now, building on top of first initial framework. And they came up with, as we spoke about, the lightning strike on how to actually orchestrate and bring the organization together around creating that one event, that one touch point that will let everyone realize, okay, there is a category here and these guys are going to be the winners in it. You know, it's funny how that exists, but European venture investors aren't that familiarized with it. And it surprises me a bit every time because as you just said, it's almost by definition venture. It's venture on a playbook. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. You know, the, this, how you approach the analysts, how you get them to start to talk. Like one of the biggest learnings for me watching companies try to go through this is it's easy enough to talk about the category yourself, but like how do you get other people using the terminology for the category that you've created is very hard. And but if and, you do and it, when do you stop, right? <laughs> And so, so yeah. that, because you're going to be like, okay, I've been talking about operator LPs for ages now and no one is really picking it up. <laughs> Am I doing it wrong? Should I keep doing it? <laughs> Am I, should I yeah. shift? <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's, it's super interesting. Now, sorry for derailing this. <laughs> no, but on another topic that it's very rare that we find a VC that doesn't bring this up, 
is, and, and going back to your core principles, right, John? I'd love to ask you to deep dive a bit on the second one that you shared, which is, you know, the way you think about founders, the way you assess founders. And I'm asking this for an obvious reason. Everyone talks about it. I actually think most people are full of shit, right? So I'd love to hear your thinking. I'd love to give you also the airtime to expand a bit on what that means, actually, from a very concrete uh, standpoint. Yeah, sure. Let's start with two kind of observations. So one is there's a lot of people that talk about backing A players. And I just, I, I really hate that terminology because I don't think it's, that's a very, very fixed mindset way of describing someone. Like, are they an A player? And yeah, we kind of all know what it means. And, and obviously it's not, but it's sort of a label. Whereas I think the founders that you want to back are people that just constantly trying to improve themselves and evolve with the business. Um, so that's kind of point one. And then the second point, so David, to what you just said is we all say it, like it's quite rare to meet a VC that if you ask the most important thing, they don't say people. And that's the next question that I always find interesting. It was like, okay, great. How do you assess it? And the reality of what we normally do is we get people, founders to pitch product to market about eight times. And then we have a discussion about whether or not they're any good at building a business. So what we're actually judging is whether or not they're any good at pitching product to market. What we're not judging is whether or not they're any good at building a business. And so that's the kind of bit that we wanted to throw out. So our process is, so we have like a first round meeting, which is very standard kind of 45 minute founder pitches to us. The second meeting is with the whole team, which is one of the great benefits of being small as five of us. It's very easy to get us all in a room. The stage after that is where I think it gets a little bit different for the founder versus what would they would experience with the normal VC. Before I get to that, I'll describe what we're trying to assess. So we're going back, we're trying to assess development capacity. And we believe that there are four traits that are linked to that capacity to develop. One is awareness of your own strengths and weaknesses. So understanding what you need to develop. The second is awareness of your impact on those people around you. So understanding how you impact on people you manage or how you impact on the stakeholders around your business. The third is the systems and processes that you have in place for developing. Like, do you have ways of learning? Do you have ways of gathering feedback? And then the fourth is, have you experienced something in the past? And this can be in any walk of life where you've had to develop rapidly and in developing rapidly, you've done something that's like truly outlier. And so what we're trying to do is create an assessment process, which starts to look at those traits and kind of broadly break it down into three things that we do. So the third meeting is what we call, well, we call it the founder interview. And we say to the founder, look, all the founders, if there's more than one, the next session you know, there's no pitch deck. We don't want to talk about the business at all. We just want to talk about you. And it's typically a 90 minutes session. And the opening conversation is or question is, tell us about the biggest influences in your childhood, and then work forward to today. And then we ask about what they think their strengths and weaknesses are, what achievement they think was the hardest to achieve when they had to develop. So we're trying to build a picture. And it's incredible, like given that this is like, third meeting in, it is incredible what you learn about someone by doing that. It's kind of ridiculous as it sounds because we would have thought we'd all be doing it because we wouldn't, if we were going to hire someone, we would have conversations like that, but VCs tend not to. Or if we do, like the other thing that I felt was really wrong in venture is there was quite a lot of like, oh, well, we take someone out for some beers and then we figure out, you know, what we get to know what they really like. And I'm like, well, you get to know what they're really like if there's someone who likes going for beers. <laughs> um, you don't get to know what they're really like if there's someone who hates the idea of that kind of situation. 
and so yeah so we have the founder interview sorry there's the step before the founder interview we do something there's a, um, a psychometric assessment called hogan which is now quite like well adopted across the like scale-up industry and so we we have the founders go through that process and camilla and i have both trained on hogan so how to interpret the results of those um, psychometrics to be really clear we do not believe there is a good or a bad hogan profile so we're not looking at the profile and saying this person is going to be good or bad at their role what we're looking for is what kind of areas should we ask about in the interview where they may be extremely strong or they may be not so strong and just to explore that a little bit more and then we do referencing and we do a lot of referencing and we do it very early in our process which is potentially the only bit that kind of adds friction to the process because the rest is you know we're replacing a pitch meeting with an interview and then we kind of bring all that together to develop a, a viewpoint on that person's ability to develop with the business again like trying to avoid good and bad but like focus in on okay where are they strong where are they weak I think that's it's it's really cool because that's one of probably the best answers we've had on the podcast. So thank you for that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, it some notes. If I should add to that, you know, the origin story of this interview is that we were in a um, a call uh, where we were discussing deeply portfolio models with you, George George, one of the very good TPs from um, yeah, Pale Blue Dot. Yeah, and I I think this here shows us exactly the profile that you have, John, because you give us a systematic reply to the question that most people dodge or, as you say, go for beer and then I get a feel for who he is. I see if he uh, actually says thank you to the waiter or if it's a douche and blah, 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 right? (laughs) (laughs) And I just think that it's so interesting to see this, you know, if you're a framework thinker, you're a framework thinker. You then love portfolio models and you also love the systematization of that process. And I, I think it's, I love investing in this type of profile personally, because you guys really give me comfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good too. Actually, one of the funny things about that is that, um, so Joe at Isomer was when they invested in our fund, he, I mean, they didn't call it an interview, but he set up a call with me to go through my life story, which was the only time that we had that with a, an investor. It was, an, it was a really cool experience actually. And in some ways gave me the confidence to do it. We were already doing it with founders, but I came away feeling like positive about that interaction. And like I was something that you could, founders hopefully would come away feeling positive about too. It wasn't. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that especially in this Zoomified world, (laughs) um, it's all the more important, right? Because I feel a very strong connection to one of our GPs because I have had a 90 minute call of that exact sort because, you know, that was actually driven more from a content perspective. But definitely I feel I know that guy very very well because we've dived very deep on really his story so i I can see the strength of it for sure i have a a question like that connects to that right how do you see um generally speaking your own lps not necessarily the lps but also prospective lps right how do you see the way you guys approach this you know these this core principle of your firm right which is bigger than, than the fund right how do you see this resonating with them is it something that is unique is it something that is different from their perspective or is it something that most just brush off as, yeah, sure, <laughs> right? Uh, really curious. Actually, we had very, very different experiences, I think. So some focused on it and some focused more on the first principle. So this idea, we, so I, I didn't do a great job of introducing the first, we call it shared value. So this kind of concept of building, let's say, environmental change in parallel with economic change within an industry. Is that also connected to uh, Porter's creating shared value concept? 
I wish. I wish. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, Someone that. showed me that after we... T- so, well, actually, no, maybe... It, so, basically, one of our advisors at the start of the fund, we were talking to about this, and she was she's brilliant. And she, she'd been working in and around kind of advising companies on how to think about the impact they were having. And she drew this, like, chart of, like, an imp- cost impact curve and then how you can come off it. And then she pointed us towards his shared value article. So we kind of came to that shared value later and loved it. But I know we actually had that chart in our deck and sometimes people would get that. And some people would be like, this is just a load of lines. Like what on earth is this? Um, (laughs) But uh, so, so we, we kind of ended up with the LP conversation would go one way or the other. So someone would either love the shared value piece and like dig on that and try to understand that more. Or someone would really love the founder piece. So interesting, we have in our LP base, we have 15 founders that we backed in the past. And then we have a load of other like operators and, and exited founders. And the concept of development and how to assess that really resonated with them. I think anyone who's sat in a room over and over and over again with a VC or an investor, you know, they're, they're kind of, imagine the, the fact that as a founder, if you go into a meeting and ask them what matters, they'll say people, you then pitch your business and then you get told no, and you never get told no based on people. Like that disconnect, like I think if you're someone who's been through that enough times, you kind of get why it's great that a VC will actually do some work on it. I have a question um, on this uh, founder development point, because it's what you evaluate them on. Is it also where you focus your value at afterwards and where you focus, how do you approach it, see yourself approaching it differently from other VCs? Because there's definitely uh, the burnout VCs, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there will yeah. there will say I want a, a founder working twenty four seven and I don't give a fuck. And then there's the others that at least try to say, okay, we all know that this is the A League and you don't get to the A League and just by by chilling around. So obviously you're gonna work super hard, but we also believe you should have a coach. And we are already working with these partners because we know that they're they're very good at blah 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 all that stuff. And then they have a full package to kind of make sure that their founders have the right ecosystem around them to flourish. How do you think about that, John? I'd love to say that we had an incredible ecosystem of, of coaches that we recommend. I, if I'm really honest, I've really struggled with that. I don't have a coach at the moment, but for most of my like career in a management role, I've had a coach and I, it was a huge benefit. I do think there is something deeply personal about finding a coach. And I also think there's something... A coach really works where you feel like you can literally say anything to them. And if there's a single like, well, maybe this is just my character, but if there's a single like doubt in your mind that this might somehow get transformed, even just as a feeling to a VC, then I could imagine that damages that ability. So I don't think this is just because we haven't, I think there is a real reason that we haven't like built like here's a short list of coaches because I think that the best founders that I've worked with have built those relationships with coaches themselves and kind of sort them out themselves. I think the the kind of first job is to make sure that as a VC, you're very, very supportive of that. And coaches are not cheap either, right? So the concept of a founder spending thousands of pounds a year on a coach out of a relatively limited budget is something that we're really supportive of. I think that's probably a, a kind of starting point. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that it's it's not about whether you have built the ecosystem, as you say, fuck that. <laughs> but it's more it's more whether, so you have limited touch points with the founders, you have limited airtime, and where do you focus, you know, the parts where you want to make a difference towards the founder? Because if you're just saying everything, <laughs> then that doesn't work, right? So 
choosing as a VC to say, though, this is one of the points that we care enough about to actually bring up with the founder and keep an eye on is also, you know, is a much more important thing than you having a repertoire of coaches. <laughs> yeah. And I also think there's, there's some stuff that you can do. There's kind of almost a way of interacting with a founder that gives them this of confidence to be open with you about the challenges that they're facing. I think one of the places where it comes up a huge amount is in hiring. So you have a founder that goes out, they go out to make their first big senior hire. Let's say they're hiring a CMO or something like that. And it takes them, you know, it takes them three or four months to find the right person. It then takes three months to get them into the business. And then two weeks later, they realize that they're not quite right. And you can develop a relationship with a founder where they feel like they have to sell to you. And the last thing they want to do is say, this person's not quite right, because they feel like that you're going to be like, oh, you know, that's a bad, you've made some bad decisions there. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is you are so reactive that they feel like they can't tell you that they can't kind of voice a doubt because they voice a doubt. You're going to be like, well, get rid of them. It's not right. You know, they, you need to take them out of the business. As a VC, there's like a fine line you need to walk whereby you're giving the founder the ability to talk to you about it, but you're not being at all directional in the response and you're just giving them the kind of space to make the right decision. And I think that comes back to that idea of burnout. Like you don't, a founder, it's stressful enough without the interaction with your VC also being stressful. Like how do you make it less stressful? Would you say, John, that are you far enough in Ika's story? Because I believe that like the underlying kind of differentiating factor of most VC firms is the flywheels that exist within that firm, right? That over time, they just, they build like further access and further ability to win. Would you say that Ika is far enough in its story where you're already seeing this core principle playing out and you being able to access some of the best deals, not only access, but also win, right? So truly access them. Or is it too soon to really tell that? I mean, I think we have accessed some incredible deals. I think the feedback loops in VC are too long for us to be able to confidently say, like, this is right. I think there's a lot of principles that we've taken from a much longer time in VC. And so I have a lot of confidence in them. I had like, for example, that way of working with founders, I'm confident in that. But then, I mean, especially on the access point, I just have like constant paranoia on access because it changes so much. And, you know, even to the point that something that I think is only, like it's, it's only really starting to dawn on me, but I'm 41 and 10 years ago, I was 31. That's some complicated math. Um, <laughs> and that's that's how VCs do maths, everyone. Yeah, exactly. There we go. This is deep insight. Into this guy is a portfolio model <laughs> geek and he doesn't like that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But if I was, um, when I'm 31 and I'm, and I'm backing a founder that's 30, like the relationship between us is going to be different. So when I'm 41 and I'm backing a founder that's 30. And so what they want in terms of the way that we communicate, the way that you build a relationship with someone, it's just subtly different. And that goes to access, right? So, I mean, I could have used an even more of extreme, like a 25-year-old founder or to compare talking to a 41-year-old VC is very different to a 31-year-old VC. And, and I think as a VC, you just need to constantly evolve. The industry's changed dramatically in that time. Like, how do you think about building brand? How do you think about building relationships? How do you think about building access? Yeah, and I think that exactly now that we are on the access point, let's talk about sourcing a bit, right? Because if you're paranoid about sourcing, then you're, and you're also a systems thinker, right? And I'm sure you've built out yeah. some system to try and help solve for that. Yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. We have. <laughs> so we think about sourcing as outbound and inbound in the very much in the same way that you would think about it as a funnel in, in a like an enterprise software business or something like that. Like how do you build brand? 
And how do you build network on the inbound side? And then how do you build like data and research on the outbound? So inbound, they find you, outbound, you find them. And I think the job is about trying to build coverage in, in both of those inbound and outbound. And I'm, gonna, I'm making numbers up, but if you can get to like 75, 80% coverage in both on your chosen thesis, then hopefully when you go bring those two together, you get close to, to 100% coverage. I don't think you're ever going to get 100% coverage. But so, so that's how we think about it. On the outbound side, which is the bit that kind of we probably put more emphasis on in the way that we built Eka. So we have a team of five people. So our first hire and a guy called Hamish Law, who's a data scientist, or originally a data scientist, and came in to build our approach to data in terms of finding companies and has done an incredible job. He's a, like a core part of the investment team. He's a, a principal, so it's not like a kind of segregated data role, but he is responsible for building that. And we've sourced like a very significant percentage of our companies through that platform, which is fantastic. And then we hired someone called Esther Ryan to build out the research side of what we're doing, which is more kind of systematic, strategic, looking at an industry, mapping it, and then trying to identify companies within it. And obviously there's a big overlap between those two. But yeah, so I suppose if you looked at our kind of investment in team at Eka, other person in the team is Alicia Walker, who runs finance and operations, but that also goes into kind of portfolio data. We've invested heavily in in that. And rather than building a team where we have this kind of concept of like silo deal doing teams, we work as a team in everything that we do. Could you expand a bit on the uh, data side? I think it's intriguing that you say that many or a good percentage of the deals you've done have come from the data side, because what I'm Kind of seeing often is that, yes, there's the data side, but it's more of a, we make sure that we see everything, but in fact, we end up doing the deals that are coming from, you know, our past co-investors and good friends and LP, angel LPs and that kind of thing. So the interesting thing about the data side, so first of all, I, I think it is now, like, if you're not doing it as a VC, then you should be doing it. Like, it's, it, I don't understand why you wouldn't. The second thing is, it's sort of not a standalone effort, right? Because quite often what will happen is will a company will be get identified through the platform and then it will be like a total team effort to try and network into that founder. So it's not like this kind of tool pops up, we message the founder, then it's like you've got access because that's not how VC works. It's like knowing about a company is very different to investing in the company. But yeah, I should have the numbers. So it's, uh, it's like being back in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm trying to, I just, I should have the numbers in front of me. I think it was 40%. I, I, I'll dig them out. 40% of the investments we made last year were originally identified. Like the first flag in the system came from the platform rather than through network or inbound. And that is, you know, that is significant. To your point, David, on like, how do we know when it's working? Obviously, we'll know we need to look at the performance of those companies over time to see how much value that is adding to what we're doing. But it definitely feels like a good spot to be in. I have... Um... A final question before we move to our quickfire round, which is, again, kind of wrapping everything up on this core principle, right? This, this founder, the way you think about founders, the way you assess founders, the way you work with founders. As you think of your firm's development, you are hiring people, right? You're going to hopefully have more funds. Uh, will they be bigger? Will they be smaller? It's same size. Depends on you. But how do you think about that moving forward? Because you will, you know, being successful, institutionalize the firm more and more. And how do you think about keeping true to this core principle, which is such a relational thing, right? It's so human, which is incredibly hard to institutionalize as you grow and, and, and are successful in venture. That is the question. <laughs> 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 um, 
like how do you scale a VC fund? It's the question. I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the very, very best funds in the world have stayed pretty small at a partnership level. I think VC is the most scalable, one of the most scalable businesses in the world. If you think about the scale coming from the companies that you back, you can be a five-person organization that has invested in a company that goes from £100,000 of annualized revenue to £500 million of annualized revenue. And you can still be a five-person company when you have a, let's say, 10% shareholding in that company. Like That is almost the kind of definition of scale. And so I think our job is to trust that if we back the very, very best companies under our thesis, then we'll scale. And and actually, I think as a VC, you can think about building in two different ways. I'm massively oversimplifying it, but you can think about building in two ways. One, you can think about building value through AUM and management fees. And two, you can think about value in the carry. And if you think about value in the carry, then the scale comes from the portfolio. If you think about value in the AUM, the scale comes from managing more, from the management fees and the scale comes from AUM. I know that I love thinking about building value in the carry because that means we get to work with the best companies in, in the world. So when we think about like, how do we scale ECA, I look at the kind of Union Square Ventures and the benchmarks of this world much more than I look at the A16Zs of this world. And I think that is going to allow us to stay true to some of those principles for longer. That's not the same as saying we're going to be five people forever. And so all of the challenges you just talked about will exist. It's just, it kind of protects them a little bit more. But it's a different scale, right? It's the same problem, but it presents itself in many different ways. And I love how elegant you were in saying it's AUM versus carry instead of saying it's management fees versus carry. <laughs> I think it was very elegant of you to say that. <laughs> very nice, very polite. <laughs> anyway, John, moving on, and maybe I'll, I'll add a quick note to our listeners. Ika has a really nice Substack as well, which I started following recently. So if you're listening in and, and you'd like to hear what they're thinking about on a weekly basis, go to ekvc.substack.com. It's really cool. I learned some stuff already. So that's why I'm recommending it. John, quick fire round, quick answer questions, 30 to 60 second answers for each. Are you ready for this? Yep. First question, and this might be an easy one for you, but let's start with it either way. What areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that excited about? I am going to say waste. <laughs> And, uh, ah, we have one guest that said the same. Oh no! <laughs> it was 18 months ago, but we have one. Oh, Maybe that's long enough ago. Yeah. <laughs> that suggests that not many people are talking about it. And like waste in, in a system. So, you know, how can we do more with less? Or like, how can we want less? Or like, how can we need less? And, and it's just everywhere. Like, if you think about, I don't know, the clothes people don't buy. So, one of the things that you sat in a queue on a motorway and you look at all of the empty seats around you. And you're like, oh my God, if we filled the seats, I'd get there quicker. There wouldn't be a queue. There'd be a lot less emissions and everyone would be spending a lot less money. It's like waste. Like, and that's a data problem. You know, you think about healthcare, if we could find an issue earlier, then it would be much less costly to treat. The person would have a much better health outcome and the treatment would be a lot less invasive. Like all of that, like waste, that's it. That's it. I just, like, that's <laughs> almost like the first thing that I look at when I look at something. It's like, where's the waste and, and, and what's it costing? Uh, second question of a quick fire. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising for their own funds? I think that you have to believe deeply that you're going to make your investors money. And if you focus early on on a strategy where you like 
in your very core believe that it is one way you're going to make money, it makes the 18 months to two years of slogging about pitching to people so much easier because you believe that you're giving them an opportunity rather than asking them for money. And I'll actually like shout out to, there's a, um, you may have spoken to him, a guy called Rory Sterling, who I was talking, he was an ex-colleague of mine. He's now at Connect. I was chatting to him when starting the process of raising the fund and talking about how I'd never like gone through the process of asking people for money before. And, and he just said, look, you're giving them an opportunity. You've given up a great job. You're spending two years without getting paid because you believe you're going to make money by doing this. Like you're giving them an opportunity to work with you. Think about it like that. And that was one of the best pieces of advice I got through that whole process. A great way to look at it. The same way a founder should think, right? When they're pitching to a VC, yeah. they're giving that VC an opportunity to be part of that incredible journey and hopefully make, make a lot of money. Third and final question, John, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? I think it is that as a venture investor, you can take away more value from a company an order of magnitude more value from a company than you can ever give to the company. So if you, <laughs> if you think about it on a scale where a hundred is like you doing nothing, you can literally move that outcome to zero on the negative side. And you might be able to move it to like 102, 103 on the positive side. And so like the number one job before you ever think about how you can help a founder is making sure you're not getting in the way. And if you're making sure you're not getting in the way or you're not making a stupid decision in an, or an irrational decision in a stressful moment with the votes of your shares or the vetoes or the anti, whatever it is, all these like bells and whistles you get, and then you get the right to start adding value. And so when a founder, are, like it's the, the classic question, like tell me, the founder says to, to us, like tell me how you work with founders, I always start with that. And like the number one thing is that we can take more value away than we can ever deliver. And we, our number one objective is not to get in your way. I love that. And I feel tempted to add a fourth question to the mix, which is, does the same apply to LPs, John? <laughs> I think it's a lot less involved, isn't it? As an LP in the, in, <laughs> I think the VC community has this like a much deeper belief that they can like, it probably, I think it comes from PE that they can like really get involved and move the needle. And that is, I've just seen like 16 years of sitting on VC backboards. I have seen way more value taken away than I have added by people just doing awful stuff. <laughs> Could not agree more. <laughs> and it's so fun. I remember, I remember one of my first touch points in VC with a very successful founder had exactly that learning because I, I remember talking to the guy saying, so what did our firm do best for you during your, your whole period? What did we do best? And then at that time, that was a super big shocker and I hated hearing it, right? But the answer was, well, you weren't in the, in the way, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> at that time, I hated that answer, right? But it's the absolute truth, right? If you can okay. manage not to get in the way at any point in that founder's time, then you've done much better than most investors. <laughs> yeah. And it's a skill, I think. I think like it, it's a, you know, we talked about coaching earlier, like the, when you look at a great coach, they're, they're not directional. Like that's a skill. It's like this kind of, con yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a process and it's good. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining us, John. This was hilarious. And again, everyone check out the uh, EKVC Substack. It's interesting. If you love charts, then for sure you'll have a newsletter to follow every week. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it and absolutely love what, what you're doing. And that's awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC. 
the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.